Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. They want to destroy this country and everything that we have fought for and hold dear. They want to steal your liberty, your freedom. They want to control what you see and think and believe so that they can control how you live. They want to enslave you to the weak, dependent, liberal, victim ideology to the point that you will not recognize this country or yourself. So, Murphy, the uh, optimistic Republican convention is now underway. That was uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle, uh, who uh, <laughs> gave a uh, an unusual speech uh, last <laughs> night, uh, and uh, John Heilman is with us, our old buddy, our old hackeroo pal. You were down there, huh? I could hear her from from my hotel, um, even though she was in Washington D.C. Oh, that's right, she was in D.C. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't need to turn on my set; just open a window, and there it was. Yeah. It was here, here's my question: That thing was on tape. Yeah. Does no one sidle up to her and say, uh, Kim, maybe we ought to take it down a few decibels and try it again? I mean, what what, what were they no. thinking? No, they're thinking they want to get paid next week. You know, this is a royal court. You don't mess with family, huh? Yeah, poor Don Jr. had to walk up and tell her how great it was. Are you kidding? <laughs> it was a nightmare. They don't just want to get paid. They also don't want to see the guillotine, which is like the way that it works in the royal court, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, no, greatest speech ever. Yep. Wonderful. <laughs> that notwithstanding, what, give me your guys' top line assessments of uh, of what we saw yesterday. I'll go first and quick. Mine's a two-headed one. You know, the death of a great and proud political party that I've served for decades. Uh, it was tragic in that regard to see these thugs take over. Uh, and the lies that, you know, it used to be the spirit of Ronald Reagan, our conventions. Now it's the spirit of George Orwell because the truth was a murder scene. That big picture stuff aside, as far as the raw politics, they hit a couple of singles. And I think the cosmopolitan Dems may not hear the dog whistles there, but they, you know, they want to get the race off Trump to something bigger. And the bigger thing is this fight between America as they define it and all these enemies from the radical left doing white grievance politics. And uh, there is some power in that. And they lit the fuse last night. So if I were the Biden campaign, I would take that seriously. I think Murphy's right. And I think there's a, but I think there's a, there's a large thing that, that fights the, there's strategy versus tactics, right? And, and I watched and I thought that some of the tactics were like individual speeches did the kind of things that, that Mike just talked about. But the larger picture continues to be and, and reinforced dramatically by the coverage of the fact that, you know, the party has abandoned any notion of a party platform, that it's just now the party is Trump. And we agree with everything he said. We agree with everything he does. We don't believe in anything else. And the fact that we're going to see Trump every single day, multiple times a day. We saw him yesterday at the roll call in Charlotte where I was. And then, you know, we saw him again on television and we're going to see him every night. It just, you know, if you're trying to make this a choice election, why put your guy front and center every single night? I mean, you're kind of reinforcing the basic argument of the Biden campaign, which is this is a referendum on Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. That, I think, at the strategy level is not super smart. Let me ask you something about just an aside on that. Trump's intervention struck me as weird. They were designed to show, you know, empathy, but they played like a Trump cabinet meeting where he just goes around and says, well, enough about me. What do you think of me? 
and everybody gets to uh, praise him. So he didn't look terribly empathetic. Well, yeah, that, you know, it's like uh, Charlie Manson will take a break from murdering everybody to talk to you about his love of the, you know, of furry kittens. It's just not who Trump is. And I'm with John on this point. If Trump is the problem, get the spotlight off him. You know, the whole idea is to create the culture war thing. And so it was very schizophrenic, and it's clear they probably ordered by Trump. One, it's got to be about me. Where's my mic? Me, 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 because that's who he is. And two, they did this kind of half-assed attempt at the beginning to erase history and COVID and then uh, and then showed Trump with a heart and soul, which is just so hard to do because it doesn't fit. That said, I didn't think the hostage uh, release segment was all that bad. It was kind of stumblingly effective. The film was good. It was, you know, he was a little... Including, you know, a gratuitous shout out to uh, Erdogan. Erdogan. Yeah. yeah. He has a hard time. You look at him, he has a hard time doing things, basic things like standing straight and listening to people in a way that seems human. You know, you look at him standing in that room, he looks incredibly uncomfortable and awkward standing with those people. But I do think the bigger point continues to be like, you know, I watched the McCloskeys last night, right? Every liberal in America was ready to hate those people. The couple from know, St. Louis that brandished who, who their, brandished guns, their yeah. weapons. Yeah. And, and what you saw last night on television, if you were just, if you were a middle American was, you know, a couple of lawyers in a well-lit room talking about how afraid they were in a moment that probably would have frightened a lot of people. And I, if I was the Republican party, I'd want everybody talking about the McCloskeys today, not talking about Trump, 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 because in the end, you know, the McCloskeys are a more effective messenger. I found it amazing. I'm saying this here, but like the, McC- the McCloskeys, Tim Scott and, you know, the electeds, all of them are going to carry this message better than having Donald Trump blot out the sun and leave everybody at the end of the week thinking all we saw was, you know, all we yeah, all they Trump. remember from the week was Trump. Because, you know, I mean, Trump is Trump is not a popular product in America right now. Okay, let's listen to a little clip of that, uh, of the uh, McCloskeys. Sounds like a, ca- a new uh, situation comedy. They're not satisfied with spreading the chaos and violence into our communities. They want to abolish the suburbs altogether. By ending single-family home zoning, this forced rezoning would bring crime, lawlessness, and low-quality apartments into now-thriving suburban neighborhoods. President Trump smartly ended this government overreach, but Joe Biden wants to bring it back. These are the policies that are coming to a neighborhood near you. Yeah, so it's not very subtle. No. (laughs) No, but it works. And I want to be clear. It's like, it's obviously, you know, you're saying stuff that's obvious bullshit. And if you spend your entire time, I mean, I'm happy to call bullshit on everything in the Republican convention all week long. And there, they, there's lies there. There's exaggeration. There's, there's hyperbole. Yeah, but that's not the question. The question is, does it move people? Yes, but that's the, that is the question. And I, I think if there's lies and there's hyperbole and there's all that stuff involved in the things they're saying, but for the kind of voters that Trump is trying to get back, I'm not sure that doesn't move the needle a little bit mm-hmm. on some of those suburban white voters that Trump needs in those battleground states. You know, you look at the, the Fox News poll in uh, mid-August, uh, suburban voters, uh, 67% of suburban women, 64% of suburban voters overall gave him uh, low marks on on race relations. Um, so, you know, there is a there is a risk here that he overtorques this and actually, uh, you know, contributes to his problems uh, there with the voters who have uh, gone away. But he has to take risks right now uh, because he's in a deep hole. I, I don't think people fully compute what it means to be nine points down 
three weeks before voting is supposed to begin. So, you know, he's going to, as he is his want, he's going to paint in primary colors, racist colors in this case. And, uh, and he's, and, you know, he's not going to care about the sniffing and disapprobation of, uh, you know, people in Tony parlors in Manhattan or Los Angeles. Oh, not only that, he's going to embrace it because that illustrates for him the big fight. They've got to make it about something other than Trump. So one, they got to define Biden. And two, they need a great cause. And, and this is where the Republican Party has changed. In the old days, it would be sort of a policy debate. We want to do this. They want to do that. They're bad. That'll hurt you. Ours will help you, et cetera. That's all gone now. Now it's like, what's the big new MAGA mission? Well, the big new MAGA mission is to stop this dismantling of America as they define it. And, you know, part of it is, and this is something I've pounded on before, but parties have their things they like to do. And the Democrats do often present themselves as seeing America through the lens of groups, gender, race, ethnicity. You looked at their convention. It was a Benenden thing. You know, it, it's I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, I'm that. And what happens is the Republicans feed this dog whistle of white middle class and white working class people watching this, seeing a lot of social justice and a lot of groups. They're saying, hey, wait a minute. If it's a competition between groups, we're in the out group. We're racists. We're bad. We're not woke enough. We're evil. And they start looking around and saying, we need our group. And all of a sudden it's group on group violence. And, you know, Michigan's 75 percent Caucasian. Uh, Wisconsin, I think, 76. So. Trump knows that, and he's fine with the group election, and he's going to try to try to scare the white majority into fear of all this, that they will be left last in line paying the tax bill and being scoffed at by either the ultra-woke or the social justice stampede, and it scares suburban people. And there it is, and there's huge power in that. It's been around for 30 years. Trump's just the one who puts it in the front and adds some racist uh, hot sauce to it, and, and they, that, it, there's power there. We should listen to uh, on this uh, Nikki Haley because she she uh, just summarized your critique of of Democrats in her speech last night. There's one more important area where our president is right. He knows that political correctness and cancel culture are dangerous and just plain wrong. In much of the Democratic Party, it's now fashionable to say that America is racist. That is a lie. America is not a racist country. You know, she went on to offer herself, and obviously that's one of the reasons why she was speaking uh, as an Indian American uh, and uh, wrapping herself in her own uh, journey in this country. But, uh, but that, is, that is one of the messages here, which is they're calling you all racists. Uh, right, and, and they have a list, and you're at the bottom of who counts. Uh, and that engenders resentment. I mean, look, the suburbs have changed a lot, obviously, a point that's been made by a lot of people. The suburbs are not, you know, uniformly white anymore, and the suburbs are a lot more racially tolerant than they used to be. And it's the case that you could not have gotten to the place after George Floyd's killing that like 70% of the country was saying they were broadly sympathetic to the ambitions of the Black Lives Matter movement if there hadn't been a pretty profound cultural transformation in the American suburbs. So this is a, you know, I think, actually, your point is the right point, right, which is, this this message is going to have less traction than it had in the hands of Richard Nixon and than it had in the hands at times of Ronald Reagan and other Republicans 20 or 30 years ago. Less traction. But again, if I'm a Democrat, if I'm Joe Biden and I'm, I'm looking at polling that puts me comfortably ahead 
and ahead in almost every attribute. But there's a couple places that I'm nervous, right? I'm nervous about the fact that Trump continues to poll better on the question of crime and law and order than me. And Trump is polling consistently better than me on the economy. So if I'm watching this from Joe Biden's standpoint, those are the things I'm watching this convention for. It's not for, you know, it's, is he scoring any points? Is he, he's going to throw deep. He's going to take risks to David's point, but is he putting any points on the board in those categories? Because those are the only strong suits that he has to play. Let me ask you something about this, both of you guys right now. Uh, this, this latest egregious uh, shooting in Jacob Kenosha, Blake. Jacob Blake. I mean, you know, I don't think anybody who looks at that videotape uh, would would call that a justifiable shooting. We'll see what the authorities say there. But it's just one more brick on the load. Uh, and it, it's engendered protest. But as has been the pattern elsewhere at night, uh, it has also engendered arson, rioting, and uh, I, I got to think that's got to be a source of concern to Biden because this plays right into Trump's hands. This is like the 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 personification of the kind of specter that he's raising uh, in Whoa. his law and order uh, stuff. And you heard it a lot uh, last night. Democrats are coddling looters. Democrats are coddling uh, are coddling Rioters. Uh, arsonists. And I think it presents a challenge for Biden, because he needs to separate himself out from all of that, but not from the movement for police reform. Yeah, it's a huge, huge opportunity for Trump, because when it crosses the line into violence, the debate changes from police culture to law and order, and then Trump's holding leverage. So Biden's going to have to really watch his flank. He played to fund the police right, but he's going to have to be, I think, more aggressive on this stuff than the natural kind of nervous nature of a campaign that's seven or eight points ahead would be. But but right. that's the move where he's going to give pure oxygen well, to Trump's bonfire. Well, and here's the thing that's going to happen this week that I think people have not focused on nearly enough, right? By pure accident, because of the fact that we didn't know for months that there was going to be a Republican convention based in Washington, D.C., where I am now sitting, we are going to have, on Thursday night, Donald Trump's speech, and there's going to be fireworks over the National Mall. And then the next morning, Tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of protesters for racial justice under Al Sharpton's banner are going to march from the Lincoln Memorial to the mall to, to the to the Capitol. Now, I, I have no reason that that is I'm a hundred percent certain designed to be a peaceful protest. It could be as big as the Million Man March, which you guys all remember from back in the '90s with Louis Farrakhan. That's what they're aiming for. So, on two successive days, on the over like at night, we're going to see those fireworks and Trump. The next day, we're going to see this giant protest for racial justice. Does that protest go well? Is it peaceful? Is it all like, is it the kind of thing that every American looks at and says, you know, in the wake of Jacob Blake, goddamn right, that, you know, that is the kind of thing I can get behind. Or does something go wrong? Does does the thing degenerate into some kind of violence at night? I'm not predicting. I'm just saying this is a really unpredictable thing we're about to see at the end of this week. And it's going to be the way that people react to the totality of the week of this convention is going to be seeing those images on Thursday night with Trump and on Friday with that protest. And I think, you know, it's a because it's unpredictable, it's going to be uh, it's going to leave a lasting impression, I think, on people's minds. And again, I'm not predicting it's going to go badly or anything bad's going to happen. But we, uh, it is a, it is a huge wild card in this week that we're about to see this tra- this play out. And the Jacob Blake thing is another huge wild card in this week. It could generate massive sympathy for the movement for racial justice, 
or if there are uh, if there are incidents that that start to look scary to these suburban voters that Mike and we've all been talking about here that could end up being a real problem for the Biden campaign. And and it's a, you know, uh, last thing you need for Joe, if you're Joe Biden right now, is a lot of unpredictable elements in this race. And this is a big unpredictable element. One of the questions here is do the relatively few um, protesters who have engaged in violence and arson and yes. looting become the face of the protest movement. That's where Trump is going. That's where he's gone from the beginning. That's where he went right after George Floyd. He's been working on this project from the very beginning. And the question is whether that takes hold. Let me ask you guys, the you, you mentioned the drive-by on COVID. Um, does it hurt him uh, at all? Uh, does it matter that, you know, no mention of 100 and close to 80,000 Americans dead? And, um, you know, it, this was in every way Trump's, I mean, they're just basically amplifying what Trump has done from the beginning, which is to downplay the, 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 the scope of the tragedy and to, uh, and to inflate his own uh, role in trying to deal with it. Um, does, is there any cost for that? I don't think so. I, I think the purpose of the convention is to give his troops something to cling to when they're arguing over the dinner table about COVID. So they bring out the dental surgeon to say, you know, he's, he's been wonderful. And <laughs> it, it was the Orwell hour. It was, it was crazy. Yeah. I, I thought he was going to end the, not yes. only is COVID incisive, under control, wasn't it? Only floss the ones you want to keep. Thank you. And God bless America. <laughs> but you know, I, I think a lot of this is ball control to use the old overused sports analogy. Did something David said earlier. Biden's winning when he's hurting Trump on economic management and incompetence. That's when the needle's moving for Biden. When we're debating looting in the streets uh, or even racial justice, the, there, that has byproducts of TV footage and all that sort of thing. And I'm not talking about what ought to be, just what is in politics that can feed Trump's resentment campaign. So I agree. If you're the Biden campaign, you, you've got to get the focus on hurting Trump on his one strength. And this defensive stuff on COVID doesn't help you. But I think in a convention, you got to feed your own troops some line of bullshit, which is what I think they were trying to do. It does raise the question of like who watches these things. I'm going to be really fascinated to see what the ratings were uh, for last night and the ratings as compared to the Democratic convention, not just in the numbers of people who watched, but I imagine that Fox News had a, a, a gargantuan number last night and that uh, MSNBC and CNN were probably off from uh, last week. All right, let's take a minute to hear from one of our esteemed sponsors. You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A good and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now and it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero 
for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through relief band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with relief band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach, telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to ReliefBand.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to ReliefBand, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Dot com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. The architecture of these things, both Democrats and Republicans put, tried to stuff most of the red meat into the first hour and then went with uh, more broadening messengers in the second hour when the general uh when when a larger audience joins because the networks only cover uh the broadcast networks only co- cover the second hour one thing they did in the first hour was uh tried to attack this notion that Trump is a racist which was interesting it was almost adjacent to the McCluskeys so the it was uh, but uh and they drafted they handed the ball off to that that old uh uh Heisman trophy winner Herschel Walker uh, who played for Trump during his uh, star-crossed ownership of the uh, the, now, the late great uh, New Jersey general? So let's uh, listen to, uh, to to Herschel carry the ball here. It hurt my soul to hear the terrible names that people call Donald. The worst one is racist. I take it as a personal insult that people would think I've had a 37-year friendship with the racist. People who think that don't know what they're talking about. Growing up in the deep south, I've seen racism up close. I know what it is, and it isn't Donald Trump. Look, it, it is a hard gig. It's like being the spokesman for Diet Pizza. It's all uphill. <laughs> but, you know, I thought he was pretty good. He made the case as well as it could based on personal experience. I don't think it moved a needle, but it was better than I expected. Yeah, it's another thing that gives cover to people who, you know, who don't want, who are uncomfortable with Trump wannabe for Trump, they're uncomfortable with this aspect of Trump. It, it I guess, uh, supplies a little bit uh, of cover. Hyman, what do you think about that? I think it, I, it, it does. I think it supplies the cover that you're talking about. And I think that um, it's what people, you know, gives people who want to think Trump's not a racist an ability to point out, well, Herschel Walker says he's not a racist. He must not be a racist. That guy knows. Well, not just Herschel, but, you know, Tim Scott All was the, the, right, key, yeah, the sure, keynote, sure. essentially the keynote of the night having sure. Haley up there. I mean, they, they did pay some attention to that. They did. But but it was really notable to me that Scott, who gave what I thought was easily the best speech of the night and the most effective one, barely mentioned Trump. His yes. big finish, the big crescendo was vote your fine Republican ticket. <laughs> it yeah. wasn't vote for yeah. Donald Trump. And uh, a Scott, who's probably playing longer ball politics and I think has his own 
private deaths about Trump. It, it was, right. I'm sure Trump was bitching to his staff about it because it really wasn't about him, which is one of the reasons it was the most kind of effective. voter-friendly, effective speech. Right. I want to come back, though, to two things that, I, that, are, that are troubling me currently, one of which is... Let us help you, John. Yeah, we're here to help. I know, and I know you will. You'll probably send me... You'll give me you guys are both brilliant, and you'll have good answers for me. For the first is relates to COVID, because you raised it, David, before, and Murphy answered. But I, I was stunned to see the CBS News poll this weekend. Yeah. About this battleground state poll that asked whether uh, people find the, the number of COVID deaths to date acceptable or not. And that 57% of Republicans, 57% of Republicans said that 175,000 plus COVID deaths is acceptable. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I, I, I have often thought that Democrats and people on the left who say that the Republicans have turned into not just a cult of personality, but a death cult um, are overstating things. But that to me was stunning. And I think it feeds into, if you look at those numbers, also 33% of independents, by the way, who say that 175,000 plus deaths is acceptable. It feeds into some of the premises that they're operating on of why they're not paying more attention to the COVID thing. But that then leads to my set, my real question, which is, Given that that the Biden campaign has spent so much time and effort this summer on trying to link the economy to COVID and say Americans overwhelmingly disapprove of Donald Trump's handling of COVID, COVID has to be fixed before the economy can be fixed. Trump has made an error by thinking these are separate problems. That's been their message since June as they focused on that one main area of strength that that Trump had. And yet we have still seen now in the last couple of weeks polls from NBC and The Wall Street Journal and CNN saying that Trump has, in the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, a 10-point lead. I believe the CNN poll was about that same amount. We're sitting here, it's convention time, and on that question, they seem to have made no impact whatsoever. Trump continues to have that 10-point lead. And so I ask you guys, like, what the fuck is that about? Like, what is it about? Because I don't think it's enough to say Donald Trump's a businessman anymore and, like, people still trust him on the economy. Like, what is it, what's, what's the thing that people are really talking about there when they say, despite his mismanagement yeah. of COVID, despite 175,000 people dead, he still is the better one to rebuild the country after COVID. I think it's yeah. code for something, but I don't know what. Well, no, listen, I I, I kind of write this off to people being, you know, fair-minded. They think he was doing, look, before the virus, people said, uh, you know, he's a jerk, but everything's good. The economy seems to be going well. He really knows how to do the economy. Um, now, uh, I think they, there's a recognition that, yeah, he screwed up the virus, but the economy really, one way or the other, the economy was going to suffer because of the virus. And the question is, who can take us back after the virus? And that's where Trump is going, that he's the guy who has the chops to do it. And I, you know, I think the Democrats had a great convention last week. I really do. I, but, I do too. But if... But if I could change one thing, I would have probably indexed up the economic stuff another 10 or 20 percent. You know, Ron Brownstein had a great piece on this on Friday, uh, and I think he was right about this, Uh, especially for those, you know, um, sort of the the voters who might be on the bubble here. um, You know, I think that's important. And, you know, look, they're going to have to they're going to have to. there's going to have to be succeeding acts here. And he's certainly going to have to have answers for this on September 29th when he steps on that stage with Trump. I think they made a mistake by not going after Trump's economic record and right. and, and asking the question about who his economic plan actually uh, worked for um, and, uh, you know, soften him up on that. But 
but I do think there's a residual glow from the fact that the economy was doing well before the virus and the presumption that Trump had something to do with it. Yeah, I, I have a simple theory on this. I don't know if I'm right or not. But one, to answer your question, John, they got to keep pounding. You know, these things are logarithmatic, and it really begins with the convention speeches by each person. So they got plenty of room to run. But I think one of the reasons that we have this artificially high, crazy stock market psychology right now, when the fundamentals are not so good at all, the biggest GDP shrink forever, be, besides the fact low interest rates and you know crazy debt and cheap money everywhere, inflating asset prices, is people believe that COVID is temporary. It's not a permanent impairment on anything. So therefore, they look back at their experience in Trump and say, you know, under Trump, things are going pretty good. We hit this thing, we're all home with the flu, but it's going to go away and then we'll be back to normal and normal equals a good Trump economy. And that's the equation that I think the Democrats have to break. And that's why I had a piece in the Washington Post this Sunday that my greatest black swan fear in the election is that there will be media leaks about these early vaccine trials being effective. And there will be a tulip bubble panic of, yeah, it's going to be over soon, 60 days back to normal, no longer worry. You can put your money on the fact yeah. that there, whether there is or isn't, there will be an announcement from Donald Trump that totally. there is a vaccine and, we, and, 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 yeah. and the end is here. The end is near of this thing. I had a pharma CEO directly complain to me about that. And he said, I am very, very concerned that Trump's going to lean on the FDA to prematurely yes. declare promising results, which and then it's already doing it. The, yeah, he started, but it, it, it's going to get worse. And then the problem is the anti-vaxxers will get a win right. because the vaccines yeah. are going to have hard side effects. Right. And anyway, it spirals into all kinds of trouble. But sure. the trust factor with Trump on, on, on COVID is very low. low. And, and his, his pushing of these, I mean, we already went through the hydroxychloroquine thing, which incredibly he raised again last night. Yes, it got a little bit of an eye roll from his uh, from his guests when you raised it. But yeah, the trust factor is low. But the psychology of human beings, where a tulip in seventy five sure. days about the election went from the price of a tulip to the price of a house. When people want to believe something, be it a diet book, a Madoff stock return, a Trump University diploma, whatever it is, they they leap. And people are dying for good news on totally. COVID because it's totally. they don't like the life we're all leaving now. So there's just some wet October gasoline there. My point being, if this yeah. COVID mania takes that, oh, the cure's coming and the president says so and the leaks say so, then it's the economy again, and Trump's yep. got a back-to-the-good-old-days argument, which could be potent. So Biden has—there's no failing this. They have to crush Trump, the economic manager. I, I totally agree. And, I, I David, I, I know you know that I, you know, it was my big concern about the Democratic, Democratic Convention last week in terms of political effectiveness. I, you know, watching it, I thought it was—I thought they did a fantastic job, and almost everything was—, was, was under the circumstances, was as good as, as it could have been. It was done as well as it yeah. could have been done, in particular, Biden's speech, which was— fantastic right. um, arguably the best speeches ever given um the, the obamas did great etc cetera, etc cetera. Right. but i thought the i thought that just knowing that the big sore thumb in the polling was economics i was stunned by how little direct engagement there was on the question of economic policy and i i may be now a too old and man but i i i haven't really covered many elections where the economic question has not been central. I mean, and Democrats win elections when right. the economic question is central and when a Barack Obama in the middle of the right. financial crisis or a Bill Clinton in the middle of the recession yes. make the argument that it's the economy stupid and I'm better on it and better for average ordinary working people. Yes. The notion that right now 
that the Biden campaign is not. I mean, they've been focused on it. And I know that's what Build Back Better is about, but they have not made that much progress on it over the summer. And if I were them headed into that, that convention, I would have made it a much bigger part of all four nights of all four nights. Well, and surrogates too. That's something we we all pitched. Yeah, they squeezed it into a uh, they squeezed it into a, uh, a pod on. They had their issue day on Wednesday. They did put that in the ten o'clock hour, which was a recognition that the economy was paramount. But it really should have been a, a theme that shot throughout. Biden did Biden did touch it in a, touch on it in a in you know a, not an insignificant way in his speech. But yeah, I just, you know, I, I have this feeling that they've done their, they did their four weeks uh, of policy and they think that that has checked uh, the box. Yeah. And that is, that is well, not that's the, a big mistake. That is not the case. We all pitched a couple of, I think, months ago that it's not just saying it. And Biden is not a particularly compelling manager. Yeah. He can try to get Obama shine from the old days and take credit for the shovel ready and all that. But uh, to me, that's kind of a weak argument. He needs the best surrogate team in the world, and we talked about this. He should surround himself with the economic comeback team of people with more credibility than him, and they ought to be blasting that every day. I agree they missed an opportunity at the convention, but it's more than just that. It's a whole living campaign that never stops of credible people, and they could use it. And and they've done something, I think, again, in this context, something I find inexplicable, which has been over the course of the spring and summer, if you ask the question of the campaign, who's advising Joe Biden on economics, they have been secretive about it they've yeah. not like really they've not not only have they not done AOC. what you're suggesting <laughs> what they've not done what you've been suggesting mike which is like an all-star team of of economic wizards they've not put anybody really out they've not they've kind of been been uh, i i find that unusually tight-lipped about talking about who the kitchen cabinet is on economics and again mm-hmm. in the obama experience and the clinton experience a big part of why those campaigns worked was they had you know, a superstar team of, eco- of economists, in addition to candidates who could talk about the economy in a compelling way, they also had a lot of ballast around them, really good people who are out making the economic argument every day. And I, I just think, you know, Mike, you're a thousand percent right. I've, you know, been out now on the road into my third week of being out in America. And I will tell you, man, watching people move through the world in their fearful mask wearing ways, you can f- sense how much people are desperate to believe mm-hmm. even even when they think Trump's a bullshitter, even when they know he's a liar and he is a, a pathological liar, there is going to be a big, aching audience to hear the notion that a vaccine right. is here. People want totally. to hear that, man. They want to hear it. It'll be and a if they, and, it, and if they also believe that Trump is the is 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 appreciably stronger on economic rebuilding than Biden, and we get to that point in late October, that's the scenario that if I'm the Biden campaign or anybody who thinks Donald Trump is unfit for office. That's the scenario that I would be panicked about, that they don't, that they wake yep. up in late October and people are going, hey, the, virus is, the, the, the vaccine is coming and Trump will rebuild. Let's go. There you go. Okay, let's take a break right here for a word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. I want to do the flip side argument because they've supplied the answer that you say Biden hasn't given. You know, their answer is, yeah, he's being advised by Karl Marx, Fidel Castro and uh, other AOC. uh, Yeah. So Sanders. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. So um, 
You're going to hear a lot but, of that but, tonight. But last week, you know, one, one of the things that struck me was they did a very good job of rooting Biden, you know, root, family, faith, um, you know, military, family, uh, you know, son of uh, the industrial heartland and so on, working class guy. Um, and I wonder, and I, you know, watching this last night, they basically portrayed him as something much different. Um, but it raises the question, like, how many people actually watch both conventions? This was this was my point before about yes, I'm really interested totally. in the ratings because, you know, it, I'm not sure that a whole lot of people uh, saw, although he did, you know, I think what Biden did last week, and this was reflected in some polling, he did, uh, he, he, he toughened up some of his soft voters. I think he he improved his image among people who were already supporting him, which is good because if you're at fifty percent and you're ten points ahead, you know, strengthening your 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 yeah, your you got to fill in behind your lines there. More people right. are fired Trump than love you. And I, I again, they could have done more, but I thought they filled in Biden. Uh, it was a good step in that vital direction. So, but now the Republicans are going to have four days to fill him in too, and we know what it's going to be. Let us listen to a couple of. The primetime speakers, um, we, we heard from Nikki Haley, uh, and to your point, and to all our points about sort of assigning surrogates to Biden, uh, she had this to say uh, about who Biden's listening to. A Biden-Harris administration would be much, much worse. Last time, Joe's boss was Obama. This time, it would be Pelosi, Sanders, and the squad. Their vision for America is socialism, and we know that socialism has failed everywhere. Wait, I want to hear more. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, just singing my, singing play, my tune play. there. <laughs> Let's do an hour of this. They want to tell Americans how to live and what to think. They want a government takeover of health care. They want to ban fracking and kill millions of jobs. They want massive tax hikes on working families. Joe Biden and the socialist left would be a disaster for our economy. But President Trump is leading a new era of opportunity. So there you have it. I mean, I yeah, think I've got to get off the podcast for a minute and type my resignation letter to Republican <laughs> voters. Against no, that Trump. was your you've been singing this. You've been singing that. Uh, I've been predicting this Corey is tune for uh, for yeah. for decades. <laughs> this is like classic Murphy from the 1980s. We call it preaching the truth, brother. Gospel of what is? I, I know, I, I know what you call it, but um, um, <laughs> um, look, there were some good Republican things in that, and she's clearly running in twenty twenty four. Lots of zigzagging around, kind of being for Trump. All three of the ones who spoke last night could be running yeah. in twenty twenty four. You know what? You know what? By the way, the arbitrage is the regular media will give her a lot of props because she's what they think the party needs. And if this were two thousand eight, they'd be right. The Don Junior speech was the best pre current Republican Party, it may morph a uh, uh, call to arms by a mile. Oh, my God, yes. And she'll find that out. Good segue. Let's, let's listen to him for a second. Yeah, burn it down. People of faith are under attack. You're not allowed to go to church, but mass chaos in the streets gets a pass. It's almost like this election is shaping up to be church, work, and school versus rioting, looting, and vandalism. Or, in the words of Biden and the Democrats, peaceful protesting so that's a place nikki haley wouldn't go yeah yep i mean that's As the usual. primal visceral yes 
uh, place that she wouldn't go. But that is the Republican Party of today as it currently right, stands. Exactly. And the thing that and the and the thing that I keep saying to all of these my never Trump Republican friends, which is like, well, we got to beat Trump, and then we're going to reform the party, and we're going to re- we're going to go back to you know the party of George W. Bush in two thousand four when we were looking to try to bring the Hispanic voters in, and you know the the, the post mortem that Reince Priebus did in two thousand eight. And I say to you guys, are you fucking kidding? Have you been to a Republican? Have you seen the Republican Party that gave birth to Donald Trump? This is a party that is that guy, the son, if Do- if Joe Biden wins this this election and Donald Trump fights it out and when there's overtime and he's already planted the seeds that the only way he can lose is through a stolen election. Donald Trump goes into exile and becomes the leader of the of the the grievance party in in exile and his son becomes the the carrier of the message and i think you know that guy that guy is tapped into a bigger chunk of the republican nominating electorate than either nikki haley or tim scott i mean you could see him up there with his jaw grinding and his his eyes twitching through that whole speech and so he's got some issues i would say yeah. hopefully i won't get sued for this but we i'll say i'll say, I'll say he, the, they're a litigious bunch the trumps he's got some perception issues but i think you know that guy is for my money right now sitting here he's the front runner for the republican nomination in 2024 you, yeah. you might be right. I, I, I think you discount the idea of a reformation too easily. If the party doesn't change, you're right. But parties change. Trump was unpopular in the Republican Party in 2015. You know, so these things are living, breathing beasts. We'll find out. We just don't know. Yeah, now. but Mike, you know, uh, Jonathan Chait had a great piece. Uh, uh, John's old colleague from New York Magazine had a great piece today about this. And the fact is the roots of this go way back. Uh, it's not just Trump. Trump has turbocharged it. He's taken, exploited it. But some of these, 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 uh, these kind of resentment themes uh, have been uh, running through, coursing through uh, Republican He's, politics for a very long time. Well, not just Republican politics. Come on, I mean, I, Ronald, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan is uh, is an exalted figure in in, in history now. But I remember that he began his campaign in 1980 in Philadelphia, Mississippi, Mississippi, you know, so uh, we should not we should not. uh, I mean, I understand and I understand why you want to to feel like that is possible. And I'm sure you'll be in the forefront of trying to make it so. But but you're you're fighting some more than Donald Trump here. Yeah, but we're we're locking the future of this determinism. That's, of course, a left wing thing that I I don't really believe the future will be made. (laughs) Remember, there you go again. The mirror. Oh, come on! We 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 proved those ideas wrong over the decades. That's the <laughs> that's a fact of history. But the mirror that the Republican Party of the future of Trump loses will be held against will be what's going on of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, and then there will be stress between kind of the old regulars and the Trump populace. And I just think saying now that it, it's a done deal because the party will never change when Trump is a 280-pound rotten piece of fish who cost us all power is premature, but we don't know. I, and then the I comfort bubble for the Dems is to write us off as a bunch of racists from Philadelphia, Mississippi that can only run a racial appeal party. I don't think so. Uh, How we learned it from Democrats like Huey Long and the Southern segregationists. So, you know, American history not, is full of racial tension exploited by politicians. And it's just going to be more complex as we go into this fight. But I agree. If the election were held tomorrow, last night, Trump killed killed everybody, Junior. I do not want to lock anybody into, and I don't, I'm not putting my money on determinism, and I'm not saying the party can't change, and there will obviously be a big, if, if Trump loses and, and Republicans are swept out of power in the Senate, there will obviously be, you know, in that kind of destruction is where, recriminations, and that, in that kind of destruction is where, is where new 
kind of the kind of factional infighting will will be able to maybe sure. you know put the party back in some direction on the right track. All I would just say though is that the party in in the last thirty years, the part of it that has been rooted in 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 cultural grievance, in xenophobia, in racism, in populism, in protectionism, all of those things have grown. You know, I watched it in 1996, and you ran that race, Mike, when Pat Buchanan found more purchase than anybody thought he would find in 96. And ever since then, there's been, it's been a growing thing, not a shrinking thing in the party. And right now, Donald Trump has a 90% approval rating in the party, and they just decided to abolish the platform yeah, no, and, no, no, and I... venerate themselves in front of Donald Trump. So going forward, there's going to be a large Trumpist faction and right now, if you ask me which is the biggest faction, I think it's that faction. That doesn't yeah. mean it will it will get, it will be in control forever. Right, right. I, I agree with that, John. I, I think that's totally accurate for this moment. Well, it's a fifty-seven percent who say that one hundred seventy-five thousand deaths are acceptable. Acceptable. I mean, that's, that's 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 your base right there. That's my point. Let's take a minute to do an ad, and we'll be right back. Let's just take one more bite, and this one from uh, from Tim Scott. You know, I thought he gave. I agree. You know, he gave a very uh, good speech for them, uh, very deftly balancing stuff. But in the end, he did pay homage to the stuff that thrills uh, Murphy and uh, and his ilk. And so America. Let let's uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's listen to that. Our side is working on policy while Joe Biden's radical Democrats are trying to permanently transform what it means to be an American. Make no mistake, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris want a cultural revolution, a fundamentally different America. If we let them, they will turn our country into a socialist utopia. And history has taught us that path only leads to pain and misery especially for hardworking people hoping to rise. He paid his, uh, his way there, but that, that is, you know, that is the theme that we are going to hear again and again over the next four days. And, and it is the, it is part and parcel of the, it's a cultural argument, uh, that's we woven into an economic argument. And, uh, that is the Trump reelection campaign, uh, right there. Oh, I agree. I think that is totally the paintbrush. And it's just true enough to be a danger to the Democrats that they don't control their left wing. And I'll give Biden props. In his speech, he walked away a little bit from the tone of his own convention. He didn't do groups. He, he did the Reagan-esque and on a good day, the Obama-esque one national purpose going forward argument, which is one reason, I think the main reason, why the speech was so good. So I think Biden gets it, but he's got to watch his flank on this stuff because people don't want radical change. They want to return to normalcy and an economy that works and a president who doesn't wear clown shoes. They don't want to go on the AOC crusade. Well, and I'll say one other, I'll, I'll say one other thing, though, Mike, which I think you know, we've not noted about the Democratic Convention. The other thing was you know, there are a lot of people on the left who were unhappy with that convention for a very particular reason, which is that they felt that it gave too much space to Republicans, which is just reinforcing your point. I think the Biden people were very attentive to the notion that they wanted to pre-butt this argument. And they gave, you know, more time 
you know, you had John Kasich and Susan Molinari and Colin Powell and John McCain coming back to endorse Biden from the grave. I mean, there was a lot of Republican acreage, way more than the left of the party wanted to see. Mm-hmm. That was not a mistake. That was a, an attempt to kind of get ahead of this thing. And you've seen it even this week. You know, they're continuing, I think, smartly. I don't know how much you I don't know how much we think it will matter that Jeff Flake came out and endorsed him. Uh, Biden yesterday or this morning that, you know, Carly Fiorina is endorsing him, but they are continuing to beat the drum for a very particular purpose, which is to say this is not this is a guy who 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 the old fashioned Mike Murphy Republicans like this guy. And 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 those people would not be endorsing him if he was captive to AOC or captive to Bernie Sanders or Che Guevara, whoever they think he's captive to. Right. No, no, no. It's totally a counterweight to that narrative. And it's important because what I think you see and there are more groups coming, I'm up to my neck on all this stuff, is both the permission structure for Republicans who know he's wrong, but it's not been ideological. It's not so much, oh, Trump's, because there's no ideology in this election other than what Trump's trying to interject. It's that Biden can at least govern competently and respect some of the values of the presidency, and most of all, the rule of law, and Trump can't. So, but I agree, the Biden campaign is using, you know, it's funny, somebody tweeted me, why did John Meacham get more speaking time than AOC? And I I shot back, because they want to win, you know? And so I think the Biden campaign gets it. We got to get to mail, but I just have to say on this point that something you just said kind of haunts me, uh, which is uh, that competence is sort of the essence of that message. And it reminds me of 1988. Because that was, remember, the, the message of the Dukakis Convention was he was competent. Competent, not ideology. Right. Competent, not ideology. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then Bush went all primal on him. Uh, you know, Roger Ailes ran one of the great negative campaigns, negative ad campaigns uh, of all time. And they destroyed, uh, you know, it was all about the flag and, you know, faith and crime and, and you know, Crime was the Cu- biggest culture war. It. It's the it was a culture the birth war of the, thing. The birth of the culture war, and and you know Adam Nagurney wrote a piece about this in the New York Times that I've been waiting for someone to write just the other day, which was you know what happened in '88 was you know you had that big inflated Dukakis lead. You had the Bush con- you had the Bush convention in in New Orleans, which was very successful, and it was the Thousand Points of Light convention. And then immediately after that convention, you saw St- Pledge of Allegiance, Willie Horton, and the ACLU all deployed very quickly at the end of August and into early September. And that that culture war, holy trinity of the culture war, that's the birth of where it started. Modern culture war politics started right then. And and it, and that's what Trump is trying to do in a less subtle, less sophisticated way. Totally. I, I worked on that campaign for Roger Ailes. And yeah. I, I, I wrote a piece in The Bulwark three weeks ago about this, where I remember sitting on a station wagon going through the combat zone making a film about the Massachusetts miracle, you know, people throwing bottles at Castellanos and I. And it was the classic case of jump ball to definition. One, who Mike Dukakis is, nobody right. knew. So he can say it's about competence because, as you guys know, every campaign's an amplifier. And the truth was he was kind of a classic liberal Northeastern Paul. So that we picked the pejorative elements of that and blew him up. And, again, that's one reason I was against Harris because I think the same electron microscope is heading for Biden. And Biden's got a pretty good, robust defense going, but their vulnerabilities there, and the definition microscope is coming. Yeah, we don't have time for Gina Raimondo right now, but <laughs> I <laughs> I wish Biden did <laughs> save the day. But I, the one thing I would say is that Biden is not Dukakis, uh, like no. culturally. Agreed. Agreed. Culturally, he, and that's why I think the cultural rooting they did last week was really smart. Okay, hit the mailbag real quick. It's listener mailbag. All right. 
We've got some really smart questions this week from our really smart uh, listeners who can send their letters to where, Mike? What, I'm the email guy now? I actually have to check the little card. Of course. <laughs> it's Hacks, Hacks on, on Tap. tap at, I handle the technology here. <laughs> Hacks on Tap at gmail.com. Hacks on Tap at gmail.com. Or Axelrod D at Communist Party USA. They will forward them. Or M. Murphy at rightwingtroglodyte.com. Also, rate us on iTunes, please. It really helps us. You can go on their podcasting thing and give us a comment and a rating. So, First question. To the point we've just been discussing, Donald Trump has a 10-point lead in the latest polling and handling the economy versus Biden, which means Trump can still win. What would you do to close the pivotal gap in voters' minds who will handle the economy better? Just put a little more finer point on it strategically. Yeah, sure. I I think it's a two-pronged offense, like any good sphere. Uh, One is Trump is proven incompetent and the stakes are too high for incompetence because it's going to be a huge lift coming out. And I would surround Biden with really heavyweight surrogates because Biden isn't a pre-aware title, as we say in the movie business on fixing economies. Needs more than an Obama story. Uh, And I think the, the second thing to do is the who's on your side argument that Joe has started to do but can do more of, which is what kind of economy are we going to have? Um, uh, you know, what, what are going to be the values of that economy? Is it going to be big corporations and the rich and all the stuff that Democrats, when they don't oversell it, can really work for them? And I define that economic future. So I, I'd run on being able to deliver it and a better version than Trump's, which is cronyism and, you know, a, a field day for billionaires. I think uh, Jennifer has a question for me, but she would love you to read it, Mike Murphy. Oh, well, absolutely, Jennifer. The question for Brother Axelrod is, of all the focus groups, surveys, polls, and journalists, etc., talking to voters, has there been a single example of a person who did not vote for Trump in 2016 but is planning to vote for him now in 2020? Great question. It really is a great question. And I have to say, now you're out there uh, with your circus crew, Heilman, but I really haven't run across, you know, Clinton-Trump voters. Uh, I'm not sure that they exist. And what that means is that Trump really has to, he has to replicate what he did in 2016, and he has to add to it because he had third-party candidates on the ballot in 2016 who helped lower the bar- the threshold for him so he could win those battleground states without getting to 50%. Right. Well, the answer is, I think there's two different ways to think about this question. One is, are there Clinton voters who are going to switch over to Trump? The answer to that, I believe, is there. It, like, it may literally be zero. But there are many, many millions of Americans who did not vote for Donald Trump in 2016 and might vote for him right. this time. And they were Correct. non-voters in 2016. And that is what the Trump campaign has yes. been relentlessly focused on for the last two years, is in every battleground state, identifying white non-college voters, to use a broad paintbrush, but basically white non-college voters who sat out 2016, didn't vote for either, and now might be pulled into the Trump column. That's where they get their additional numbers, not from Clinton voters, but from that pool. And I have met people like that. I've met, you know, and there's obviously new voters who are coming into the system. So I've met voters like that who are not, who, who, who were totally alienated from politics and, and now think Donald Trump is their hero. And those are the people that, uh, to the extent that the Trump campaign, that incumbency, money, and time, which are big factors in why an incumbent is favored in whenever there's an incumbent on the ballot, what they have spent that money 
and time on and, and technology and savvy is, is mining for those voters in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Florida and Arizona and North Carolina. And that's what I'd be worried about. Biden campaign has to not worry about them stealing Clinton voters, but about finding a bunch of those new voters. The Journal had a great piece over the weekend about a Brookings study that showed that uh, the, the largest number of voters who were non-voters, eligible people who were non-voters in 2016 were white non-college in those three battleground states Mm -hmm. in the in the upper Midwest. Uh, That's where they're going. And that adds an an element of uncertainty uh, to all of this. I totally agree with that, though. It's hard to turn non-voters into voters. So it's a lift. You know, it's always one of the but you're totally right. That's the targeting. I can report, however, I have personally found two voters who voted for Hillary Clinton who are switching to Donald Trump. They are the O'Malley brothers, two angry, bitter Irish politicians in Delaware who have some old beef with Joe Biden. But other than that, I think the I think the country is clear. Ah, the Irish. Yeah, exactly. My guess is Biden will still win Delaware. <laughs> their wars are all happy and their songs are all sad. So Irish, <laughs> Irish anger in Delaware and some ward, that, that's all that theory has going. Yeah. You know, I think that uh, this enterprise, though, of trying to spur these non-voters into becoming voters is a lot why I believe this convention is not to swing people who are on the bubble. Right. I think it's to pump up people. They need to get off the bench and get in the game yeah. here. And, and that's why it's going to be edgier than, you know, uh, the critics, uh, you know, in the media would, would like. So uh, uh, we got to run, but I got one for you. I got actually two for you, Heilman. Uh, one is from Menachem, who says, who will play Trump in debate prep? Have you ascertained that yet? I have not ascertained that yet. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question currently. I have a pitch, not Gia Raimundo, Sherrod Brown. Really? No, you know, I think you need a New Yorker. I think you need someone who has that. There's a certain level of, I say this as a native New Yorker, a certain level of obnoxiousness <laughs> yes. that uh, I don't think uh, Sherrod can, uh, can, can reach. And it's a huge factor. I mean, you know, look, I think everyone says that Philippe Rannis, who played Trump in yeah. debate prep for Clinton, was very good yes. at it. Um, and it was very helpful. And David, you he could reach the requisite level of obnoxious. And David, you know that um, that, you know, it was very helpful for Barack Obama, despite his poor performance in the first debate in 2012. It was good to have John Kerry playing Mitt Romney. Well, and more to the point, it was really incredible to have Jennifer Granholm play Sarah Palin for Biden in 2008 because she completely inhabited, she's a former actor, she completely inhabited uh, Palin to the point where you really, when we saw the debate, it was, oh yeah, this is, because that's (laughs) what you need in debate prep. You need to simulate. the accuracy. Uh, I used to make people just get transcripts and just use the exact words because the truth is you can kind of know what they're going to say because they've already said everything. So 80% of it's canned. You just have to learn it. Yeah. So, you know, guys, I, I had a second question for Heilman, but in the interest of time, I think we got to mm-hmm. we, we should probably quit now. Uh, we've got another uh, hacks on tap on tap for you. It will be out bright and early Friday morning after the end of the convention. We'll evaluate the last uh, three days. Mike Murphy will join Robert Gibbs and a mystery guest for that episode a yeah, mysterious yeah. who could it be yeah just want to keep you on your toes you're going to win a box of magic spoon if you email us <laughs> the name in the next 20 20 minutes well, there's one sponsor we're going to lose go ahead well, yeah we're up to two <laughs> a week now and and our friend and super hacker who gibbs is carrying the weight on the second one but he and i'll do it and then we'll alternate over to david so 
Anyway, all right, you guys. Heilman, you're the best. Excellent. It was great to see you guys. All right, talk to you soon. 